welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Mad in America podcast. My name is Madison Natarajan. I'm a doctoral student in psychology and science writer for Mad in America. You can read some of my articles as well as our team's articles under the research news tab on the front page of our website. In this week's spotlight interview, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Natalie Campo. We'll be discussing her background as an integrative psychiatrist, her experiences with helping clients taper off medications, and her expertise in holistic treatment modalities. Dr. Campo currently resides in Nashville, where she serves as a clinical assistant professor at Vanderbilt and provides consultation to the Osher Center of Integrative Medicine. She opened her practice there in 2011 called Mindful Medicine. Dr. Campo, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today, and I want to thank you for engaging in this discussion with me. To start us off, could you just tell us a bit about your background, such as where you grew up and how you decided to go into medicine? I grew up in a small Midwestern town. My dad traveled occasionally internationally for work, and he sometimes brought back small gifts, and he always shared stories of his travels. I remembered him bringing origami paper and folding cranes with me as a child. I became interested in cultures outside of the one I was growing up in. And once on my own, I traveled internationally whenever I could afford it, right after high school, during college breaks, before medical school. During my fourth year of medical school, having finished my required rotations, I spent a month traveling in India and another in France. I had decided at a young age to go into medicine long before I had had any of my own travel experiences. But when I think back, many of my hosts internationally happened to be physicians willing to share their homes and experiences with me. That's really great. So it sounds like this, these experiences abroad um, with different cultures really in, informed your interest in wanting to go into medicine. What led you to become interested in the subject of psychiatry specifically? What led to my interest in psychiatry specifically was this desire to learn about perspectives outside of my own. And it was also, in part, a certain travel experience. It was in between my first and second years of medical school. I went to the Amazon jungle to study encephalitis, inflammation of the brain caused by a very specific virus. I was interested in the work, but I was really motivated to apply for the grant because I wanted to see Peru. While I was there, I joined some students from Johns Hopkins and helped out with their study tracking infectious spread of another disease. The community of student travelers was fun, and the time in the jungle was transformative for me. I left Peru knowing that I wanted to study the brain and the mind. I don't think I could have articulated it at the time, but I had had a felt sense of the interconnectedness of life while I was in the jungle. Yeah, so it sounds like that really broadened your perspective to see things a bit more holistically, which led you to thinking more about psychiatry. It did. And that experience was so much more important than I could have ever known because I was nearing my clinical years, years in which medical students lose empathy. So let me explain that for a minute before I continue answering your question. Medical students going into medical school often are more empathetic than the general population. But unfortunately, we found that as medical students go through their clinical years and move into their residency training programs, they actually have less empathy than people in the general population. 
Teaching medical students and residents about resilience led me to these studies on empathy. Empathy is important for resilience. People are more likely to bounce back from the inevitable traumas of life if they have empathy, if they have the ability to see the perspective of someone else. But empathy decreases in clinical trainings. I believe this is in part due to the large number of patients to be seen and how futile some of our tools are in helping those people. Wow, that's really interesting. And I think it brings up a really important part of the medical training experience that when you hear people talk about doctors and the need to have good bedside manner to learn that something occurs within their training experience where things start to become so clinical that they're not really making those empathetic connections that maybe they did initially when they were starting their training. I think that's exactly it. And I think that loss of connectedness is so important. And somehow that experience of being in the jungle, surrounded by the trees and animals and having had that felt experience of the interconnectedness really made an impact on me. In my clinical rotations, my third and fourth years of medical school, I found myself more interested in the person with the disease than the disease itself. And I saw many examples of chronic illnesses that had resulted from failed attempts at coping with emotional distress. I remember one patient with end-stage liver disease dying because of alcohol use, dying because of an attempt to cope with life. I remember thinking, had he had other ways to cope, he wouldn't be dying this painful death, and he probably wouldn't be alone. I saw psychiatry as an opportunity to intervene sooner, to offer tools for coping with inevitable stressors of life. I saw it as a hopeful field. Can you tell us a bit more about your various professional experiences with holistic treatment? I'd love to talk more about my professional experiences with holistic treatment. And I need to back up a bit and say how that interest started and why I became interested. I saw it work in medical school. I had the opportunity to spend a month working with the physician in his private practice where he used integrative medicine. And by that, I mean he used conventional medical treatment models and evaluation procedures, and he also used holistic treatment models, including acupuncture. And then he also used lifestyle changes like nutrition. He was incredibly fascinated and interested in the power of nutrition. And he taught me those skills, those topics as well. In your medical training, were there any parts of it that led you to become skeptical or critical of psychiatry and its research or treatment modalities? There were parts of my training that led me to become skeptical and critical of psychiatry and its research and treatment modalities. I will also say that I'm incredibly grateful for the trainings that I had and really believe that the teaching that I received really came from the best intentions of the physicians that I worked with. The skepticism actually came before I started my psychiatry training. I was still in medical school. I had just come off of an elective with a very interesting physician where I had learned about nutrition and acupuncture in my fourth year of medical school. And the patients that I was seeing with him were happy and healthy and thriving. And then I took two months where I did two externships. Externships are like internships, but they're done during the fourth year of medical school. So a fourth year medical student can take the opportunity to travel to another medical school where they may consider doing their residency training and work in the role of an intern for a month or so. 
So I chose to go to another city where my sister was living at the time and did two months at two different institutions. I was really excited because these were my first opportunities to really work as an intern, as a psychiatric intern, even though I wasn't quite ready to go into residency training. But I was also nervous because these were a bit like month-long interviews. I'd selected two externships because they were a part of triple board programs, combined residencies in pediatric psychiatry and child psychiatry. Ultimately, I decided I didn't want to do all three of those things in the five years that those trainings were, but I didn't know that before I had visited. The first of these externships was at one of the world's most acclaimed psychiatric hospitals. My rotation would include time on an adolescent unit. It was a beautiful campus full of trees and patients spent time outdoors learning mindfulness as part of their therapy. I was impressed already. This truly seemed like a thoughtful approach to allow for healing. But once inside, I saw some of these children holding bags of chips and cookies and munching as they desired all day long. Maybe you're thinking that's great, access to familiar comforts. But I was thinking, we're mindlessly putting toxins into these kids. Most of them were already obese and on medications known to cause metabolic abnormalities and weight gain. And we were encouraging processed food intake. Maybe I should back up a little bit too, because I feel like maybe I'm coming across as a little bit extreme about processed foods. But as I've studied nutrition, and as I had just studied it with the physician who was working in his private practice, I had read a study where students in schools were given simple nutrients, and those students were found to have statistically significant, less violent, aggressive outbursts towards other students. Simply by giving, and these nutrients were simple, they were given multivitamins and fish oil. So it's clear from the research that nutrients really do change behavior and drive symptoms. And so I couldn't help but bring this question to the director of the hospital. And I asked simply, can we replace the junk food with real food? His answer was, I know, and our activities director smokes. At the time, it was frustrating. It was a frustrating non-answer to my simple, direct question. But looking back, I can see how authentic it really was. He was acknowledging that the junk food was addictive and harmful to the body, including the brain, by comparing it to smoking. But he felt powerless to make changes for the better for his patients. I was critical of that decision, but I also felt powerless and had no authority, or I felt like I didn't, to make any changes to the food offered to patients at the hospital. On the same externship on a different unit, I was working with a physician for one day. Because I was serving the role of, our, of an intern, a first-year physician in training, even though I was a fourth-year medical student, I was occasionally asked to write medication orders. On this particular day, the plan was for a taper of medication. Since I had never tapered a medication before, I asked how to do it. And the response may be why my memory is so vivid. The psychiatrist was annoyed by this question and responded, just cut it in half and cut it in half again. It's not rocket science. I remember thinking, but it is brain chemistry. And I thanked him, but I made a mental note to learn about medication tapers and not to ask dumb questions. That was about 15 years ago. And as you probably know from your research, Madison, there is still no consensus on how to taper antidepressants. 
it's still a good question. So I went into psychiatry training skeptical and critical of conventional practices. I knew going in that I would practice differently. I knew that when I was responsible for treatment plans myself, they would always be integrative, including conventional knowledge and evidence-based holistic modalities and lifestyle changes, especially real food. My training experience in psychiatry was unusual because of that intention. While I still learned about SSRIs and forced swim tests like all of my colleagues, and I also I also spent time studying mindfulness-based stress reduction and sitting with Stephen Southwick discussing the science of resilience, a pioneer in this field. Because of his generosity of time with me, I was able to create a mindfulness program to help bolster resilience in resident physicians. I went into my psychiatry residency training skeptical of conventional medical practices, determined to learn what I could about psychopharmacology, and then to go beyond that and to think about ways to thrive and heal. How often would you say clients are coming to you having been on antidepressants for extended amounts of time and are interested in getting off of them? This does happen. People call requesting consultations for assistance coming off of medication. It probably happens a few times a month. I think I've noticed it more as public awareness has grown about how difficult it can be in coming off of medications. And there's also been a raised awareness thanks to people doing work like you're doing to help bring that to public awareness. Public awareness has grown around how coming off of these medications can be very difficult. And as conventional consensus on how to taper these medications has stalled. Yeah. So since there is no kind of standard consensus on the best way to do this, I'm wondering what your personal guidelines are for when and how to prescribe pharmaceuticals to clients. Like, Do you typically engage in conversations about side effects and long-term use? My guidelines for prescribing pharmaceuticals are really my guidelines for the way that I work in general. And that is that the integrative approach is always collaborative. I'm only bringing knowledge of certain modalities, including medication, but it's really the patient who's bringing the questions, the intentions for the treatment, the distresses, the life experiences, and it is only by the combination of those two forces or those two two partners in that partnership that we can create an effective treatment plan at all. So to answer your question, when I'm thinking about prescribing pharmaceuticals, I'm always discussing alternatives. I'm always thinking about risks and benefits. Because medications can have so many implications and so many risks that are potentially even unknown, I will often discuss a medication with the person as a last resort, but not always. I do find them to be helpful tools at times. I'll often include a partner or a family member in the discussion of a medication trial. We might even look at a list of common side effects of a medication together. But then since the lists are often so long for potential side effects, I will often encourage a patient to think about and read about the medication on their own in between sessions and then to come back and sit and again discuss potential alternatives to reassess where they are at their, in their life at the time, even if it's only a few days or weeks later. Wow, that's really amazing to hear because I think uh, there's so many people who have the experience of coming in, you have a 15-minute conversation, and you walk out with a prescription. And it sounds like you really do a thorough job of getting a full evaluation of the psychosocial factors that are impacting this person and really empowering the patient to have agency over their own decision around 
what types of medication they might be on, including encouraging them to do their own research on what some of these side effects could be. Since new research is showing that tapering over the span of months or possibly even years is more successful at preventing withdrawal symptoms than the quick discontinuation of two to four weeks. I'm curious what your experience has been helping clients taper off of their medication, such as the length of time and any sort of withdrawal symptoms that they experience. My experience with helping clients taper has been as individual as the interactions with the patients themselves. And that's really because there's so much more to what we're doing than just tapering a medication or even just starting a medication. I really think of it as such a small part of our plan, sometimes an incredibly helpful and effective part of our plan, but really such a small part. So it's hard to say with certainty what effects the taper itself has on the patient. But I will say that my experiences with helping people come off of medications have taught me to go as slowly as we can. And it's not always that we go slowly, but I agree with you that it's weeks and even months or years for some people, many people we can, and there's no rush. Oftentimes these medications have been used for a very, very long time. And so if we want a very effective, smooth taper, it's often most helpful to go as gradually as possible to, to create as few waves or shifts in the chemistry, in the biochemistry, or even in the person's habits. Anecdotally, what results do you see when clients are off their medication? What changes do you witness or do your clients report to you? Anecdotally, the results that I see when clients are off of the medications are also really variable. But I do want to share one example that I just remember so vividly. This was from years ago. And it's a simple example in some ways because it was just one medication. And so maybe this helps to illustrate a point about medication. This particular patient had been referred to me by an acupuncturist. She was hoping to be able to conceive and she was taking a benzodiazepine and didn't want to be on the benzodiazepine when she was pregnant. She'd been taking it for 10 years for insomnia. So the acupuncturist called and asked if this was something that I would be interested in helping this patient do. And I said, have her give me a call. I'd love to talk to her and see what, what she is interested in, what she wants for the treatment. Well, it is exactly how the acupuncturist described it. She wanted to come off before she conceived. And we did a slow taper. She had time. She was already doing so many things to support her emotional well-being. And so that is always foundational. If we can do other things to support well-being as we're doing a taper, it's really essential. In fact, I usually don't encourage people to even consider a taper unless life is going really smoothly. It, this again, this patient was years ago and she tapered off slowly. Off, I don't remember how long it took us. It took us a while, but we tapered her off. And I can remember the day that she was off completely. She came in and she stood up. <laughs> she like threw her arms back behind her and she said, I'm free. And I said, what? I didn't know what she was talking about. She said, I'm free of the medicine. I didn't realize that I wasn't. I didn't realize that it was just helping me to fall 
to sleep at night. She said, but my, I realized now that my body actually had become dependent on it, that I had, I needed it. I required it and I no longer need it. So that's sort of, it's not always that dramatic. It's usually not that dramatic, but that's a fun example of how she felt so, you know, free from coming in to have a prescription written. I hadn't been the person who had been writing it for her in the past, but she no longer needed anyone to write it for her. And she was able to use other ways to care for herself and to allow for sleep at night. So the next question I had was about why psychiatry as a field might be reluctant to confront more of these issues. I think that it's actually a bigger issue than just psychiatry confronting it. We really live in a culture where we are interested in quick fixes and medication at times can provide a change and sometimes a quick change. And so, and sometimes that's very helpful. And I would go so far as even to say sometimes it's essential and even life preserving, but not always. And I think culturally, we would really much prefer a quick fix. Yeah, and we want to believe that these medications can provide that quick fix. And maybe in an ideal world, they could, but it's just not what seems to be happening. It doesn't seem to be happening, and it's not sustainable. So even if there is sort of a quick fix because of a state change from a medication, the underlying causes are not being addressed. And so the healing doesn't happen and it's not sustainable. If we don't ever address the root causes of depression or anxiety, if we don't ever search for example, a vitamin or nutrient deficiency, if we don't see the psychological stressors that a person is dealing with, and how can we see that in 10 minutes, right? We can't even get a full picture of the person's life, let alone look for causative agents and then discuss alternatives and risks. There's no way. And we're not allowing physicians time. I say we, the systems that are in place are not allowing physicians time to interact with their patients in meaningful ways. Yeah. So there would really have to be an entire restructuring of the medical field in whole as opposed to even just pinpointing like what psychiatry needs to change, the whole system would needs to be reconsidered. I do think so. I think for most, when we're thinking about chronic conditions and we do think about a lot of these distresses as chronic human conditions, as medical professionals, we tend to, the answer tends to be, more medication because that is a quick answer. And you only have 10 minutes, you really only have time for quick answers. But we have a lot of problems in our in our society and our culture and now in our world with obesity and insulin resistance. And that has led to depression for a lot of people. Yeah, I think the language that you use is really helpful, even when you use the word healing, that the concept of healing is very different than just thinking about symptom reduction. And so constantly kind of going back to what are the root issues, and even if we have something that is treating the symptom reduction, the root cause that's having all of these, this overflow into other areas of people's lives isn't being looked at or isn't being healed. And how can you do that in 10 minutes? 
I couldn't agree more. I think that's so well said. And I do think that there are times when a medication might be helpful to help provide a reprieve or a moment to be able to reflect. But I think that we're, as a field, placing way more emphasis on medication than and way more hope into medication than it can deliver. I think it makes sense to look at it from maybe it's less about what's being said, but more about what's not being said. And for you to have the time to be able to add these other conversations into your meetings with patients is what could make all the difference and uh, give them a lot more information and agency over their own decision-making for how they want their life to look. Absolutely. And mostly the patients that are contacting me are already thinking in that way. And that's why they're contacting me. So that has been a really rewarding experience, certainly. A, A patient called last week, moving from out of state and wanting a second opinion, saying that he really liked his psychiatrist that he had been meeting with for years, but that he only saw him every six months and he only met with him for 10 minutes at a time. And when they met, the instructions or the directions were always to either increase his medication or to add another one. And he said, the patient said that he was tired of that kind of approach and had asked the physician to help him to taper. And the physician was doing so, but reluctantly. And so he was hoping for a second opinion. But he had also said that he had been studying on his own and had been starting to eat a real whole food diet and was already feeling so much better. So that was really encouraging. It'll be interesting to see how that turns out for him. Yeah, I guess that's a great thing too about calling yourself um, an integrative psychiatrist and you know, even the name of your practice being mindful medicine. Uh, it already kind of brings in a certain type of client, I imagine, who's seeking out, I just need to do something a bit different. Is it at all professionally difficult or threatening to your career to help people taper from their medication? I don't think it's professionally difficult or threatening to help a patient taper from a medication that is causing them harm. It is certainly a different way of practicing, of sitting with people for extended lengths of time and thinking through treatment modalities that are outside of conventional treatment plans. And so for years, it did sort of feel like I was practicing in a very different kind of way. But there were many people who came before me and who did this work and whose professional careers were absolutely threatened by the work that they were doing. A very famous example of this is Herbert Benson, who described, studied the relaxation response at Harvard many years ago. He would sneak subjects into his lab in the middle of the night and record their breathing and monitor their blood pressure and would show that with this relaxation response, their blood pressure would go down. But this was controversial, right? And I mean, we all have breath and it's so safe and so effective for bringing blood pressure down and for helping with anxiety. But he had to sneak these people in to be able to do this research. And so while I don't think it's nearly as threatening to me or for me to practice in the way that I practice because I do practice with so much caution and always thinking about safety and always thinking about the best interest of the patient. And that to me is the best type of medical practice that we can have, but it is different and in many ways unconventional 
I think that that's a great segue um, to talk more about the different treatment modalities that you use, because this is kind of your area of expertise. And given your knowledge of natural remedies and respect for the innate healing power of the human mind and body, I'd love to hear more of your perspective on that, such as uh, the types of treatment modalities you've seen work best, specifically when it comes to treating clients with anxiety and depression. I love this question about treatment modalities that can be helpful for patients, specifically with anxiety and depression. I love it. And it's really hard to talk about treatment of this type, this type of work without a patient, right? And that's because when I'm sitting with someone, I'm only bringing my knowledge of the modalities and the person is bringing their experiences and their distress and their intentions. And I'm listening very carefully to try to understand first what it is that the person is experiencing and also what it is that they are seeking, what type of guidance they might be requesting or thinking about. And so in some ways, it's very hard to think about what are, what are the treatments. But I want to answer your question specifically. And this type of work, is necessarily collaborative for the reasons that I just said. And there are some very specific things that we can do. Absolutely, right? We're going to look for causes. If there are easily identifiable causes, and there are many, there are many easily identifiable vitamin deficiencies. There are people may be struggling with thyroid disease, and these can present like depression. This is conventional psychiatry. This is absolutely taught in psychiatry residencies. I don't know how often it's practiced. I hear lots of clients who will come in and say they haven't had blood work done in a very long time. And so I want to be looking for those biological root causes because if they're there, I want to be able to treat it. So that's important to keep in mind that integrative psychiatry is conventional psychiatry. It is also holistic psychiatry and it is also lifestyle changes, sort of the Venn diagram of those three and where they converge is integrative psychiatry. So when I'm thinking about holistic modalities, which I think is what you're asking about, when I think about anxiety, breathing techniques can be very effective. And that goes back to what we were talking about with Herbert Benson, right? There are many different types of relaxation breathing, but they all come down to one key component, and that is extending the exhale. The reason for this is every time we inhale, we activate the sympathetic autonomic nervous system. And every time we exhale, we activate the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system. So in theory, we're in balance all day long, inhaling and exhaling, inhaling and exhaling. When we inhale, that is the sympathetic part. That is getting ready, fight or flight. It is being on guard. And as we exhale, the parasympathetic, that's rest and digest, it's ease. It's being at peace. It's, being, it's feeling safe. So all day long, if we oscillate between the two, we are in balance. But what do most of us do, especially if we're feeling anxious? We inhale and we hold our breath. And so then we're in a state of sympathetic overdrive. And how do we balance that out? We balance it by exhaling. So if you can really extend your exhale, you can move yourself from a place of autonomic You can move yourself into that place of parasympathetic. And you can do that in one or two breaths. And you can do it for yourself. You can notice that sensation in your body. You will become calmer. 
for depression, it certainly is helpful to be able to use breathing techniques, especially if there's a lot of anxiety with depression. But there are certainly other things that can be helpful as well. Mindfulness, a non-judgmental awareness of the present moment, a curiosity can be really helpful to be able to develop mindfulness practices in your daily life. And specifically when I'm thinking about depression, this can help with anxiety too. But when I'm thinking about depression, I'm often thinking with people about movement. It doesn't have to be a certain type of physical exercise, but some exercise, some physical movement is absolutely helpful for depression. It increases BDNF in the brain, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. And so with exercise, we will see mood improve. And it might just be momentary. But once we have a habit of exercise, then we have the brain is building, BDNF is building in the brain, and it's becoming more regular. So that brings me to another piece, habit and rhythm. Sleep is incredibly important. It's foundational. If that's the only thing I can help someone with, they will feel better, right? We have to have sleep so that our bodies can heal. We have to have sleep so that we can think and focus and concentrate. If we're sleeping, if we're falling asleep at about the same time every night and we're waking at about the same time each day, that helps our circadian clocks. We have circadian clocks in every cell of our body and that helps reset them. So sleep is important. Food is incredibly important. We've talked about that already. Breathing is incredibly important. Moving. And so none of these things are new, right? I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before, but actually putting them into practice on a daily basis. Well, and maybe mindfulness or meditation, maybe those practices are new for some people to think about. Incredibly helpful and effective. And if we can have a rhythm in our life, if we can wake in about the same time every day, check in with ourselves with a short meditation. Maybe it's just, maybe it's not a meditation. Maybe it's just a breathing exercise. And then we can eat at about the same time every day. And we eat real whole foods as close to their natural way as possible. And we have movement every day. And then we allow for sleep again at night. If we have restorative relationships, nurturing relationships... You know, we, we talk a lot about consuming toxic things in our lives, but sometimes our relationships can be very painful. And maybe we need help setting up boundaries to protect us from difficult people in our lives. Therapy is incredibly important. Unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that in conventional psychiatric practices. The vast majority of the patients that I work with have therapists, and all of them receive some type of therapeutic intervention when they're meeting with me. So therapy is incredibly important and helpful as well. I imagine I'm leaving many things out. I, I think about yoga with people. I think about um, biofeedback at times. I've studied lots of different herbs and supplements that have been incredibly helpful. But again, these are all taken in context. They're all individualized for the person that I'm meeting with. And we're thinking about how one thing will interact or not interact with another. Your response is really making me think back to how this links to what you said earlier about the need for more structural change, because everything that you're saying makes so much sense. And it goes back to, if you don't have the time to be collaborative with your patient and to learn all of these things and figure out what's conducive to 
the lifestyle that they're currently in and how it needs to change, you miss so much. And it was really encouraging to hear what you said about how integrative psychiatry is conventional psychiatry and that that indeed was part of your training. However, there seems to be um, a culture shift that needs to happen to see more psychiatrists like you who are actually practicing it. So there was kind of a gap between what you were trained in and what you were seeing people practice. There was kind of a gap in what I was trained in. However, that training, that integrative work really came even before I started studying psychiatry. So I was working with that integrative physician in medical school, learning about nutrition and acupuncture even before I started my psychiatry training. So I knew that would be the way that I would practice when I moved into it. And I didn't know a lot of integrative psychiatrists when I started, when I finished my residency and I started my own journey, but I did know some. And now I am really happy to say that I know many, and there are many, many more every day, every year. When I, and I go to these conferences and they're just, there are more and more people who are interested in this way of working because it works. And so I'm really encouraged and excited that we are at the beginning of something that is going to be very different. And it may take a very long time. And I know that there are a lot of people who are really struggling and who don't have a relationship with a provider. But that could change. It is really encouraging to hear that you're encountering uh, more people who are interested in this perspective at conferences. And it sounds like, you know, you do envision a future where there are more people practicing in this way, but it just might be uh, a slower pace because there's a lot of structural change that needs to happen as well to make it conducive to this type of work. Well, Dr. Campo, again, I want to thank you for speaking with me today and providing Madden America listeners with this insightful and honestly encouraging information. I think that the field can glean a lot from having integrative psychiatrists like you who are willing to view their clients holistically and explore a variety of treatment options. Um, for more information on Dr. Campo's practice, you can always visit her website, which is mindfulmedicinenashville.com. And thank you all for listening. And Dr. Campo, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.